This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there, Knicks fans. How you doing? It's your boy, Jonathan Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Oh, 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 oh boy. The good, the good juju. It's flowing. It's, you know, it happens to be red like Kool-Aid. That's a coincidence, I think. But man, is it flowing. Um... After a Wednesday night game that was just looking like, you know, it was looking like one of those nights that was going to set us up for just an absolute year of misery. And as I sit here today, am I going to try to convince you that there is not a year of misery ahead? Um, Maybe a little bit. Is that is that accurate? Eh, eh, maybe not so much, but. Uh, we're going to talk about last night in a second. Uh, first, a um, reminder of our conversation that is upcoming on this episode with author Paul Nepper. Uh, he wrote about the 90s Knicks and um, the fact that they were so close and yet so far. And uh, I talked to him about his his new book, uh, The uh, Knicks of the 90s, The Brawlers Who Almost Won It All. It's a, a fantastic book. And uh, we, we get into a lot of stuff. We get into some details about some things that uh, had never really before been released or, or uh, publicly spoken about until he went and did research. And uh, he spoke to something like 100 people. And it was, yeah, really good conversation. You're going to enjoy this. So stick around for that. But just briefly before before I get there, I we gotta like we gotta spend a minute talking about Emmanuel quickly. I've had now I'm recording this. It's five thirty seven on uh, Thursday night. I've had you know about twenty hours to digest uh, last night's game, and I've been thinking about it in a lot of different ways. And I think I've arrived at the the conclusion that. Emmanuel Quickly's emergence, and is it premature to call what we saw last night in, you know, I mean, he played, I think, 25 minutes, but only six of those, seven of those were really running the offense. Is it, is it premature to call that an emergence? Probably. Probably. But at the same time, he had this night, and the night that he had was despite the fact that the one thing that he is supposed to bring to the table, he didn't even do last night, which is shoot the three. He was one for six from deep. And yet, um, you know, he came out looking like this, this revelation. And I don't think it's an overstatement to call it again, the single biggest thing that could have happened to the Knicks in this preseason. And here's why. If Dennis Smith Jr. Or Frank Nilakina, um, you know, or for that matter, Alfred Payton came out at the point guard position and looked legit, whatever legit is for those particular guys, but like look like they had taken a step up. Yes, there would be a lot of hope. But at the same time, there would also be a lot of doubt because those guys are both in their fourth year now. We've seen flashes from all of them, respectively, at various times. Well, I mean, Peyton kind of is what he is. But, you know, sticking with Dennis Smith Jr. and Frank Nilakina for a second, we've seen flashes from those guys, right? Um, Dennis Smith Jr., as I've written about a lot over the last few weeks, 
Like he had a rookie year in Dallas that was no, not winning basketball. That that was not being played, but it was the foundation of something. He was an interesting player. Whether he was ever going to reach that ceiling, I, you know, I've had discussions with some of the Strickland guys about how much of of you know that that is kind of like a false hope because so much needs to go right for Dennis Smith Jr. for him to ever reach that ceiling. But the point is, if he, either one of those guys had come out and looked at the part for a game or two. The easy response to that will be like, okay, it's a preseason game. We have three years worth of evidence that these neither of these guys are the answer. So what we would have seen would be dubious, right? And then you think about, okay, well, what is the other what's the other big stuff that could have happened this preseason? And it's like, okay, Obi Toppin coming out and looking dominant. He hasn't looked dominant yet, but I would argue that quickly coming out and doing what he did is more important and actually a lot more impressive than if Obi came out and just, you know, put up 20 a game, all three games, because I don't think anyone questions that if you give Obi the chance to play in a situation that is conducive to his talents, he's going to be that guy. He's going to be the guy that can give you 20 points pretty easily. Yeah, the three-point shot has has not come around of yet, but we're already seeing him making the passes. We're already seeing him, you know, show the athleticism. He's, you know, calling stuff out on defense. He's, you know, he's pointing, he's active, he's moving around. Like, you could see the foundation is there and God forbid they ever put him out in a lineup where he's either the small ball five surrounded by shooters or, you know, there's at least three shooters around him. I mean, hell, look at the lineup that ended in the fourth quarter last night. Was he the was he the central focus of that group? No. Was he absolutely instrumental to a lot of those plays being successful? One hundred percent. And I've gone back and I've watched that fourth quarter now a few times. Um and I could say that without question. Quickly coming out and doing what he did, and just for a, a just a, a moment, putting the notion into the air that wait a minute, the Knicks may have found a guy. I'm not calling him their, you know, the potential for point guard of the future because, like. He's not a point guard. And I know people are going to hear me and get mad at that, but that's not the point. You don't need to be a point guard in the most traditional sense. And I said this in my postgame periscope after the game to play point guard in the NBA, provided you are surrounded with the right types of pieces. Guys like an RJ Barrett, a big wing who could do some stuff, include including some playmaking. So I don't think the, the question is like, is he the point guard of the future in the most traditional sense? Like, no, he's not, you know, he's not Jalen Suggs. Um, and even that's probably not the best example because I, I'm trying to think of someone who's who's a real classic point guard. And the fact of the matter is there aren't that many of them anymore because most guys that come out are somewhere along the sliding scale of combo guard, right? Um, they score first and foremost, and then it comes down to, okay, how much playmaking, um, vision, handle, all the other stuff do they have in addition to the various ways that they could score the ball? And I think what we saw and why I'm so hype, again, almost a full day after this, is that he has enough of those skills. Did it come against, I, I don't even remember the kid's name, Moody, Mooney? It's either Moody or Mooney. I feel like Mooney is, is if that's not his name, that's being cruel, but I'm going to go with Mooney. Um, whoever the hell he was playing on the, you know, the Cavs third stringers. Did that make a difference? Yeah, sure. It made a difference. But again, as I wrote in, in Thursday's newsletter, which I focused on quickly, those were the same guys who had the Knicks starters down, whatever it was, 18 points. So I'm not going to put too much stock in the fact that it came against lesser competition. I'm, I'm more focusing on the vision that he displayed, the ability to hit, you know, not hard passes, but not easy passes either. And just the fact that he played with some piss and vinegar and there was a zip to the offense. Everybody was flying around uh, and that all came from him. So now the question becomes and. 
if this isn't the overarching question that will hang over at least the beginning of this next season, I would be shocked. What happens to quickly now? And I think there's three distinct possibilities. The first possibility is Tibbs tries to put the genie back in the bottle. And, um, you know, Frank Nilakina comes back healthy. Uh, Austin Rivers comes back. You know, Dennis Smith Jr. continues to get time kind of not regardless of his level of play. Let's say regardless of his offensive level of play, because his defense, as I pointed out, and I got a little bit of pushback on Twitter today, but I, I stand by this. His defense has been damn good. Um, Like, does he just, okay, well, time to go back to the bench. Your, your time will come rookie. And we get, you know, a first 30 games that are not unlike let's say what we saw Tibbs do with Josh Okogie in his last year in Minnesota, where, yeah, you had a couple, couple games where it was 25 minutes a night and then a couple, you know, a couple handfuls of DMPs or like more or less DMPs where he played two, three minutes. Um, I wouldn't be shocked. Here's why I don't think it's going to happen. One. Well, two, actually two names, Kenny Payne, and worldwide West. And those guys, um, they are there and their voices loom large. I don't think, I don't know how large the, their voices loom because I, I have heard some things about things that they wanted to happen over this offseason that did not happen. And everybody should be thankful that they did not happen. Um, but their voices are absolutely big voices in that room. And Leon Rose, by all indication, is listening to all those voices. So, you know, you're not going to have two bigger guys in Emmanuel Quickly's corner than them. So that's one. Two, someone reached out to me. I was, I was someone with the Knicks reached out to me recently. And, and again, I don't want it to seem like I'm I'm breaking any news here because this is, you know, you could watch any Thibodeau team and see the guys he plays. And you'd, you'd know this. He has no use for point guards who can't score. And that those were actually the words that were used to me. He has no use for them. And yeah, that's upsetting to a certain extent, right? Because, you know, for those of us who are friends of Frank Milikina, but again, as I've been saying for literally months, they're not going to play Frank at point guard. They were never going to play Frank at point guard. And they're, they're still not going to play Frank at point guard. Um, and now the fact that quickly has emerged, it only solidifies that fact. So, yeah, I think Tibbs is a fan of having... And look, just go through the history. Who has he played? Who does he give big minutes to? Derek Rose, DJ Augustine, um, Nate Robinson, Jeff Teague. Who has he maybe been resistant to invest serious time in? Guys like Ricky Rubio and Tyus Jones. So what's the difference between those two groups of guys? One group can score and yes, do a little point guarding while whilst whilst scoring. And the other group of guys are more traditional, like, I'm just going to get everybody involved and I'm not going to worry, first and foremost, about putting the ball in the basket. Well, we've seen Tibbs' history. We know what guys he likes. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't think the genie goes back in the bottle. So that leaves two other options. The first of which is quickly stays coming off the bench. He's a part of the rotation, but he's not, um, you know, he's like not the starter. Or... We just go batshit crazy. And, you know, whether it's tomorrow, tonight, whether it's game one of the season, whether it's game three, whether it's game five, but somewhere in this vicinity, he hands the keys over to the kid and says, you know what? We're going to suck this year anyway. Um, Why not have you learn on the fly and get as many reps as possible? And I think that there's a real argument for that happening because... You know, Alfred Payton, he he could score. He could score. But he can't score in the ways that you need a point guard to score in order to have a functional, somewhat aesthetically pleasing offense in the game today. And for as long as Julius Randle is here, and I, I just, man, I don't. I don't see him being moved anytime soon. If he's here, he's going to start. 
and he's going to start along either Nerlens Noel or Mitchell Robinson, and he's also going to start along RJ alongside RJ Barrett. Now RJ, his shot has looked much better, but you know Alec Burks, he ain't, and and that's I'm using Burks as the example because he's the guy that's here. So. You have that little shooting, and then you have Peyton in addition to it, and you get what we saw last night for the better part of three and a half quarters, which is a defense that, and I again, I watched this entire game over again, like, they had their opportunities. The, the Cavs could have played them even smarter than they did and dared guys like Peyton and Randall um, to shoot even more. So I think better, smarter, more experienced defenses are going to be able to put the screws to the Knicks even more than the Cavs did for a while last night. And whether it's his own or whatever, whatever it is, you know, and I, I, I don't think Tibbs wants to go out and, and look at that every night. I certainly don't. And, and I don't think many of you do either. And if Randall's here, well, that means like, like how many non-shooters are you going to have out there? And I, I, I think there's a possibility that we could be in line to see Emmanuel quickly start up. But this way, if the two choices over the, over the first 30 games, because he's, we know he's going to play a lot towards the end of the year. I'm just talking about like the first 25, 30 games. If the choices are more or less out of the rotation on most nights or starter, Gun to my head, if you force me to pick one of those, I think I would pick starter by a hair. Um, But I don't think he's going to start because <laughs> I just I don't think Tibbs can do that quite yet to Peyton. And I don't think it's about Peyton's ego or anything like that. I think it's just, boy, that that's just placing a lot of faith in a kid who struggled to play point guard at the college level. Um, and yeah, he did a lot of cool stuff the other night, but you know, there's, it's, there's going to be growing pains. And again, it bears, it bears repeating that was against the Cavs, you know, C squad. So my gut feeling, um, the starting lineup, I don't know whether it's going to be tonight or, or, uh, you know, for whenever he ultimately makes this decision to start the year, I think it's going to be Peyton. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be Burks. I think it's going to be RJ. I think it's going to be Randall. And I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence now. I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's going to be Mitch or Noel. I'd, I'd still probably put my money on Noel, but I, I could be Mitch. And then for your backups, uh, I think your whichever of the centers doesn't start. Um, obviously, Obi is going to be the backup for. Um, I think. I think Dennis Smith Jr. is going to keep getting minutes at the backup point guard spot. And I think, you know, hit a couple threes last night. It's, it's like, he is, you know, he's like the guy on life support that they're ready to pull the plug. And then at the last minute, somebody runs in with like some, you know, long lost, just uncovered will and testament that's like, oh, no, wait, he said, don't. Don't don't pull it yet. We're not. He wants to stay, you know, with this tube uh, shoved down his throat. That's Dennis Smith Jr. right now. He's on life support, but I think he's done enough to stay on life support because, again, I think the defense has been good. Um, and for as bad as he has run the show, and my goodness, has it been just, I mean, just beyond atrocious in terms of running an offense. Um, I think he's at least trying to do the right. He's like, he's not making like utterly completely boneheaded plays. It's like he forgot how to play the sport of basketball, which in a weird way, I think is actually more, not more forgivable, but like, you know, you think he could get over that or maybe not. I don't know. I I think he, I think Tibbs thinks he can get over it. So I think Dennis Smith Jr. is going to say as the backup point guard, um, you know, with a slight possibility that, that Frank takes that role, but because, and this is a transition to quickly who I think is going to be the de facto co backup point guard, you know, for the time being. And whether it's next to Frank, whether it's next to Dennis Smith Jr., whether they rejigger the rotation minutes such that, you know, um, RJ is, is the one who is going to be, you know, in there, um, with them, like whatever it is, there's a lot of different ways you could give him 
assistance with the playmaking and the ball handling and all that. I think he's going to be in there. And then that leaves one spot left. And I, I, I continue to believe um, that somehow Austin Rivers is going to get time. And I don't know how or where or when, but I think he's going to get time. But yet, I, I I have to put Kevin Knox at the backup three because for, again, as bad as he looked, it was only a quarter, but he reminded you why he was the eighth pick in the draft. And I know a lot of people thought he should have never been picked anywhere close to that high. And that's fine because you have, again, two years of evidence to back up that fact. But man, when he does things and he did things last night, it, it just, it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. Um, so I think he's going to stay the backup three. Where does that leave Austin Rivers? Hell, maybe Austin Rivers, you know, takes uh, is the one who takes Dennis Smith Jr.'s job. And he's the guy who's kind of the caddy for quickly um, as, as quickly gets accustomed to playing point guard or, or quasi point guard, whatever the hell you want to call it at the NBA level. Um, I don't know. I think this season's going to be the type that, and we've seen the Knicks do shit like this before where, you know, you have a guy who's like, okay, so-and-so's out tonight with an ankle. So-and-so's out tonight with a, you know, with a, I don't know. It's, he's under the weather. Uh, or, you know, the, the elephant in the room, somebody gets COVID. Whatever it is, I think those are, those are my 11. And, I, and yes, I think Frank is the 12th looking in. But I think those are the first 11 I think somebody will be out more often than not. So it'll get down to 10. And then I think Frank will be the guy who can, you know, he's like, someone doesn't have it tonight. Let's send Frank in there to try to wreak havoc on defense and move the ball around on offense. And that's, that's my prediction. Um, until of course they make a trade. And then when they make a trade, you know, we'll, We'll we'll see what happens then, and then we reassess. And I and I do think they're going to make a trade at some point. I don't I don't think it's going to be right away, but I think they will they will make it at some point. So that's it. Um, I I, I felt you know even though it was a preseason game, I, I did feel that that it warranted uh, in a, a bit of an opening monologue. So I have carried now on now for longer than the uh, Mike Francesa opening segment. So which means I have spoken far too long. Um. We're going to get to the interview right now with Paul Nepper. But first, a very quick word from our friends at Faruqi and Faruqi Law. We had a number of injuries with the Knicks last night. There was no Frank. There was no Nerlens Noel. Um, you know, Omari Spellman looked like he uh, might have might have pulled something and run it up and down the court. Um, I think I think Mark Berman actually called him heavy set in a tweet, which is the highlight of the young season for me in any case um those guys will all in all likelihood uh recover but when one of us is injured because of someone else's negligence it can be a life-changing event and when it happens you want a strong legal team fighting for you to make sure you receive full compensation for your injuries you want to be able to call that legal team whenever you want you don't want your file to be on a shelf with hundreds of others, and you don't want your lawyers to be afraid to go to court. The legal team at Faruqi and Faruqi gives every client their personal cell phone number 24-7. It limits the number of clients they represent at one time, and it has a long track record of taking on insurance companies, corporations, and the government in court and winning. And while prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome, you can learn more about Faruqi and Faruqi by going to nylegalteam.com. One more time, their website, Faruqi and Faruqi, nylegalteam.com. All right, joining me now on the Knicks Film School podcast. Uh, it's not often that I have a published author on this pod, so I am uh, pleased and honored to be joined today by someone who is not only a published author, but happened to write about the topic that in all of the world and the universe is perhaps most near and dear to my heart, which is um, the version of the basketball team that made me fell in love, uh, fall in love with the Knicks to begin with. Um, the name of the book is The Knicks of the 90s, Ewing, Oakley, and Starks, the brawlers that almost won it all. 
I, I, almost right. Oh, I, 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 I see the almost, <laughs> and I'm like, oh god, it still hurts. Um, it's available anywhere you get books: Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, we're gonna talk all about it. Paul Nepper, Paul, how are you, man? I'm great, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on. As you know, I'm a big fan of the pod. I, I'm a, a daily reader of the newsletter, so this is a, a treat for me to to be on with you. Well, the, listen, the the pleasure is all mine um, because, you know, I. I I forget how I first came across. I, I, we, I had followed you or maybe you would follow me or whatever it is. And then I like saw the book. I'm like, wow, someone's writing a, a book about the nineties Knicks. Um, and I just, I'm like the, my first thought honestly was why hadn't anybody done this before? And I know, you know, like Chris Herring has something coming out in like a year mm-hmm. or two. So maybe it's, you know, you, you started a trend, but like, I guess before we get into anything else, have you thought about why nobody ever took the time to write this book before? Because it seems just like ripe for so much. It's interesting. You know, it, it hit me, man. It really hit. I mean, you know, as you know, so many, so many of us uh, long for those nineties Knicks teams. There's so, there's so much nostalgia for those nineties Knicks teams. And, um, and uh, I probably think about those nineties Knicks teams more than I should, because the, <laughs> you know, the, the current situation has been, has been pretty bleak for the past several years. And so uh, one day I was thinking about them and, and I thought just that, I said, man, somebody should really write a book about those teams. <laughs> and, uh, and my next thought was, well, why not me? And I went and, and right after it just kind of hit me like that. And then I, I immediately went to the computer and started search. Let me make sure it did. Has anyone written about those teams? You know, like, cause I kind of had the same thought that you did. Like it seems, it seems so ripe for, for a book. And they hadn't, you know, uh, uh, Mike Wise and Frank, Frank Isola had wrote a book about uh, just the 99 season that yeah. that finals run, um, which was very helpful for research for my book. But nobody had had kind of covered the whole time period. Yeah, it's it's crazy because, like, I have several books on, on my bookshelf about the 70s team because that's the team that like when you when you think of like basketball in its purest form it's you think of the 70s next not that i'm old enough to you know have seen them um but the 90s team it feels a little bit like in terms of it means so much to us as knicks fans right as new yorkers but i wonder sometimes how much it gets lost in like the greater um like nba like lexicon, like, you know, does it do, do people really give them the credit that they're due and you do that in, in the book, which I, we'll, we'll get into in a second, but back to your kind of process, um, <laughs> you weren't at all. In, I mean, I'm sure you were intimidated by this, but I'm shocked that you didn't just think about this because you ended up with a 300 page, like it's, it's encyclopedic in that it has everything but it is so well told and I cannot imagine how difficult that was to do. You weren't scared by the prospect of trying to pull this off at all. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for the nice, for the kind words. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was scared. I never wrote a book before. Um, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't have a journalism degree. Um, like you, I, I went to law school, Fordham, Ford, university of Fordham law school. So yeah. that's my background. Um, and I think the legal stuff helped with with research and organizational skills and maybe even with interviews to an extent. But, yeah, it was daunting. It was absolutely daunting. And um, I was just in a place in my life where, you know, to be honest, when I started on it, I just turned 40 and it was kind of a, a, like a midlife crisis thing. Uh, like I got to, you know, um, I, I need to make a change. I need to do something different. And in a weird way, that kind of... Um, feeling of being unsettled uh, motivated me and spurred me on. Um, but yes, it was, it was daunting. Uh, I, I wasn't sure where to begin, you know? And, and uh, so. Well, that's a good lead to my next question. Where, where did you actually begin? So where I began was, all right, let me try and I'm going to acquire as much information as I possibly can about the nineties mix. that's already out there and then kind of, you know, add on to it ideally with interviews and so I, um, I used my, my father-in-law's subscription to the New York Times, and I read, <laughs> <laughs> I read every single New York Times article on the Knicks from, about, from when Patrick was drafted until about 2002. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And that's, as you can imagine, that's a lot of articles. Um, I, I read uh, 
other newspapers as well. So I kind of did that for everything. And then for, for key events or dates or individuals, I read other newspaper articles as well. And then just looked around for magazine articles, you know, Sports Illustrated and, and Sporting sure. News and whatever old the old periodicals about about and tried to find anything I could on the teams there. Um, lots of books, uh, lots of books, you know, books that are, as we said, there's not a book specifically just yeah. on the subject. No, but they're mentioned, sure. Touch yeah. it tangentially, you know, I mean, there are a million books written about Jordan. Of course, you had the Knicks-Bulls rivalry. Um you know, Rick Pitino wrote a biography in the, about his time with the Knicks in the late 80s. There was uh, Riley's autobiography. Uh, Reggie Miller wrote an autobiography. Uh, you know, these, John Starks is an autobiography. So, I, you know, I read, I, I don't know, maybe 40 books just, you know, that, that in some way were related. And podcasts are another great one. You know, there's so many podcasts out now. Um, sure. And so a lot of these guys have, have done a lot of them. Uh and uh, just anywhere you could possibly pick up a little nugget here or there. I watch tons of YouTube clips of old old games and films. I mean, I, I do that anyway, but that's right. I'm not, I'm not and then, uh, and then, <laughs> well, you know, it was it was it was very much a labor of love. You know, some parts are more tedious than others, but a lot of it was a lot of fun. And then, uh, and then the next step was to to try and talk to anybody I could who was in any way related to those teams. So it's funny you mentioned Reggie Miller because the one when I'm, I was just thinking in my head, like what is, what's the closest thing to not an authoritative text. That's the, the wrong word. But um, when ESPN's 30 for 30 did, uh, what was it? Winning time, right? Was the documentary about the, yeah. That's another sub documentaries. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, I felt like that was the best, maybe not the best. It's the wrong word, but um that was the closest or most in-depth retrospective that I, I could remember coming along about. But again, that was only about one aspect of, of yeah. those eras about the rivalry with the Pacers. Um, so we're, <laughs> I'm always fascinated because I still, for this podcast, like I'll try to get interviews and it is to me, the most intimidating thing in the world for whatever reason, like some people have, zero qualms about picking up the phone or shooting an email or shooting a text and be like, Hey, you want to talk to me about this thing? Um, I, I, that's not, this may surprise people. I, I, it makes me very uneasy anytime I ever ask for anybody's time. So when you started that process, I guess, what well, you know, what was that like? Yeah. Scary dude. Scary. Um, you know, I ended up doing 90 something interviews and there were a number of other people I called to, you know, never got back to me or, or turned me down or whatever. And every single one of them, no matter how big and whether it was, you know, I was trying to get Pat Riley or uh, Carlton McKinney, who had a cup of coffee with the team in 1992, sure. they were all scary. Uh, it's a weird thing. It's an unnatural thing. It's like, hey, I'm a stranger and I want to talk to you about this part yeah, of your life. Exactly. You know? who, who would you say is the is the um, <clears throat> biggest who do you, who would you say is the biggest fish you got? And who would you say is the biggest fish you wanted, but you couldn't get? Um, I'll start with the biggest I couldn't get. And and it, it was Riley and, and Ewing, both of them. Man, and they were, got, Riley doesn't talk that. Like, you know, I've heard yeah. like Zach Lowe talk about how, or like. Oh, really? Like, I know else? that. I, yeah. I knew Riley. I knew Riley was a real long shot going in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know he's done a couple of interviews with with Levitard the last yes, eight yeah. to ten years or so, but that that's like it. He that's just it. doesn't doesn't, he doesn't do talk. He doesn't right, talk. So if Zach Lowe can't get him. I'm 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 in trouble. Um, Patrick, I was a little more hopeful for. Uh, you know, Patrick's very guarded. Um, he does do a lot more interviews than say Riley. Of course, in his current role, he has to do interviews. Um, sure. Yeah. But uh, tends to people I talk to. If it's not Georgetown related, he tends to do interviews with people that he has a long term relationship with and, you know, is comfortable with. Um, so I knew he was a bit of a long shot. I reached out to both of those guys in a million different ways. I thought I had a good shot with Ewing when uh, uh, Mike Jarvis, his high school coach, told me he would talk to him for me. Oh, wow. OK. I thought that might get it done, but it, it didn't work happen. out. OK. So those are the biggest downsides. You know, the, big, the biggest ones I got were, um, you know, Oakley, Starks, Van Gundy, uh, Dave Chackets was a huge one, you know, maybe not as big a name of those guys, but oh, well, incredibly important. We're going to get um, into that in a second because you opened the book with some some juicy Chackett stuff. But keep, yeah, right. continue. Um, and he was fantastic. You know, guys like uh, Rod Thorne, I was excited. It's like an NBA nerd. I was like, oh, Rod Thorne's a big deal. And, um, you know, Rui Tomjanovich, there are a lot of guys like that that it was pretty 
excited for. So you mentioned check and the book opens with a story that I think this is Berman did a write up on that particular story in the post a few, uh, like a month or so ago. Right. If I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was something else that he wrote about in his article. Um, but uh, I, and I had, I didn't realize this. Ewing was like gone. He was almost gone in 1991. Um, did like, had you heard that? Before you did that research? No. Because <laughs> um, I had, I and heard, I feel like I knew a I, lot. Yeah, you know, I was young. I was, I was well, I'm, old, I'm older than you are. I, was, I guess I was 14 then. I knew, I knew he was unhappy. Um, I knew that there, were, there was talk that maybe he wanted out, this and that. Um, you know, it wasn't like today, too. It wasn't, there, there was no Twitter. There were no Woj bombs. You know, it wasn't... <laughs> yeah. it wasn't uh, it wasn't all over the place. So you, there wasn't as much information, but I, I knew he was not happy at one point, but I didn't know that, um, that he, that he went to such lengths to try and get out of there. And it's really interesting too, in retrospect, because if it was, if it was 2020, like if it was now, well, he, he would have been gone. That's right? the, was, that's the thing. I'm, I mean, I was, you know, rereading it today and I couldn't help but think of the James Harden situation. I'm like, Oh my goodness, this sounds awfully similar and i don't i don't want to spoil the whole the whole story but like you meant you tell an anecdote about how they offered him a contract that would have made him the highest paid player in team sports and he said no he said i don't want it i want to go elsewhere yeah like when, when like, you when you found that out what was your reaction wow uh <laughs> wow i thought it yeah um i thought it was really cool uh, interesting that when Chekets told me, you know, I asked him about it. He's like, yeah, I explored trading him a little bit. He's like, I flew down to San Antonio and I offered Red McCombs, the owner of the Spurs, Ewing and $10 million for David Robinson. And I was like, you, you did what? Like, what? <laughs> how did, like, how is that not huge news? Did that never come out? Like, I, I, I you know, $10 million too in, in 1991 for a small market team was actually a lot of money. Well, I'm trying to think um, the salary cap back then, I'm going I'm off the top of my head. It had to be in like the thirties or maybe even the twenties or, or low forties. Something like that. In, Put it this way. Ballpark. No, no player, no player was making $10 million a year. Oh no, so no, no, no. So yeah. you think of that now, you know, extrapolate that now, maybe that's the equivalent of like $50 million now or something yeah. like that. It may be even more. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they have, rules, was, they have rules against it now, but yeah, it, it would right, be a lot right. of money. Well, and that's a crazy thing too. It's crazy that, that such a trade was discussed, but it's crazy too that back then that you could do that. That you could just say that, you know, James Dolan theoretically could just say, yeah, well, here's a hundred million dollars. Give me James Harden. You know, it's like, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing that's crazy about that, that story that you opened the book with is, is that. So I'm 37 and a few years younger than you. And just I, well, <laughs> just I, I find that not only myself, but even people older than me and and most just people who, who are fans of the team, they look back at that era as like there was there was no bad. There was no like, you know, impending doom. The impending doom was, you know, Charles Smith missing a layup and, and other things that you wrote about. But it didn't it doesn't feel like it was ever something that was on the rocks. It feels like, OK, Ewing got drafted. Maybe we missed the boat with, you know, pairing him with Bernard King. But other than that, it was essentially your normal, you know, earn earn your place in the league, slow and steady, upward rise. And you read and you I'm reading what you wrote. And I'm like, man, he was here for over a half a decade and it wasn't happening. And it's like, wow, I guess it was a lot more frustrating than we realized. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And and. You know, he back then he he did his four years in college, so he was he was approaching thirty, and he wasn't you know he wasn't that young anymore. Yeah. And um, no, yeah, and, and I and I think of it, I try to think of it in terms of today's team. You know that you can go. It, it was such instability his first six years. You know, that there's a line That's in the there thing, that, yeah. that um, Czech which people forget. First- I I think people look at those again as the glory days as an opposite of what's going on now, because now we look at the next, it's like it's instability, hopefully not under Leon Rose, but the, there's not that image of back then. And as you wrote, that was not the case. Right. Yeah. And, and, it, you know, check it said when he, when he first talked to Patrick, it was like talking to an orphan who had already lived in several different foster homes. That was the, that was the analogy he used. He'd gone through in, I think it was six years. He'd gone through five coaches, three general managers, three presidents, um, 
So it's very relatable now. You can take, uh, you know, if you get the right people on there, you know, and, you know, obviously that's the dream is that Leon Rose is, is the next Dave Checkets. And he comes in and he brings some real stability and structure to the organization. And if you do that from the top, you can you can turn things around. Well, you know, so far, so good. Early, early, uh, early returns are positive, I, I'd like to think. So, OK, they keep viewing, obviously. Um, that starts off what I like to think of as like the first I, I in my mind, especially since like the line of the line of demarcation for me is Jordan's retirement. Right. And essentially like pre 94 finals and like the, I, the 95 season is kind of the buffer season for me. Right. It's like, that's, that's the finger roll, but there's, you know, starting from then on is when they made, you know, the, the Houston edition, the child's edition. And then that rolled eventually into uh, LJ and then Sprewell and Camby and the team kind of turned over. I kind of think of the nineties as like, there's the, the first version of the nineties and then there's the second version of the nineties. Do you have, having spent an inordinate number of hours researching this book, is it the same for you? Is it all kind of coalesce into one picture? Absolutely. I, I, there are continuous strains throughout it. Obviously, you know, I mean, Van Gundy was a, an assistant under Riley and then under short, Don Nelson for a short time and then became the head coach. So he was there the whole time. Patrick was there the whole time. Oak and Starks were there for most of it. So there's there are some constants. But yes, you know, in the, in the initial process, it's OK. What is the scope of this book? You know, I had to kind of figure out. I thought about the possibility of doing Patrick's whole career. Okay. I thought about doing just the Riley years, but then I thought, well, but there was so much great stuff in the second half of the Van Gundy years, but it very much did feel like two different eras, if you will, to me. And then, and I actually decided I'm going to divide this book into part one and part two, part one being the Riley years, part two being the sure. Van Gundy years, because it did seem like a very natural kind of split there in two sections. You've mentioned Riley a few times, you know, I don't I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because I just don't. Well, let me ask you, I, I was about to say, I don't spend time thinking about it because I don't think there was ever any universe where he was staying here. Having written this book, do you feel like there was a world where Riley stays? Like a realistic one, given and again, this is a possible question to answer, given yeah. the personalities involved in the situation. And we know, we, you know some powerful personalities involved in that situation. <laughs> like, I just don't see, I don't spend time thinking about it because I don't think he was ever going to stay. I mean, I don't think, look, there's no way he's staying. There's no way he's still there now, right? There's no way he he, he stays on board with Dolan for all those years. No. Um, but <laughs> in 95, I think it was possible. You know, he, he okay. wanted to be president and he wanted, he wanted ownership and ownership wasn't going to happen. I mean, that just I talked to Rand Ariscog, who was the CEO of ITT. Back then, it was ITT and Cablevision owned it jointly, owned the Knicks jointly with ITT had the majority share. Okay. And he said to me, look, he said, I, it, it just wouldn't work. He said, I, I had to answer to a big board of directors. James Dolan, uh, Charles Dolan had to order, answer to his own board of directors. You had two massive corporations involved. It just, it wasn't a situation like, in LA with that Riley had with where he had a great one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jerry Buss or like he has with Mickey Harrison in Miami. It just wasn't really conducive to that. It was a more corporate situation. And so they were never going to give him ownership. Um, I think if from the outset, check it's had said, I'll, I'll give you the presidency and whatever money you want kind of thing. I think he might've stayed. I, I, hmm. I think ownership was ideal. I don't know that he thought early on that ownership was realistic anywhere, Okay. Um, but when things kind of when negotiations kind of broke down with the Knicks, that's when he turned elsewhere to look for other opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's it's the greatest what if in the history of the franchise, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure like a lot of people uh, wonder that. Um, OK, so Riley goes, um, you know, it. To, it's tough because the the 90 post 95 teams again, cause I was a little bit older for those. They stick out more in my mind. Um, but when, when you're, when you're looking back or, or as, as you did all this research, do you think, I, I think I know my answer to this is, but I'm curious. Do you think that they were closer to winning it all in the first era, the Riley era, or do you think they came closer at some point after? 
And the Ryler. I mean, I mean, they went to Game Seven in '94, the finals. So that's you can't get any closer than that, right? This is true. Um, this is a fact. This I think, is a fact. <laughs> I I think they were. I think they were better um, in the Riley era. Um, it's tough. I, I always say that the great kind of the great tragedy of that era, specifically for Patrick Ewing, was that once he finally had enough help there to win a championship, his body kind of broke down on him. And I think, you know, I think like 97 and a lot of guys talk about the 97. Days. I was about to bring it up. You um, quoted um, Je- or I don't know if you quoted Jeff Van Gundy, but you have Van Gundy in the book saying that's the best. I think he's, did he say it's the best Nick team I ever coached? I'm pretty sure that's what he said. He said, I, I, I think he specified the best Nick team he coached as a head coach. I think okay. he thought actually the 93 team was the best team. He could, the Charles Smith year was the best the Char- team in yeah. his whole tenure there. But the sure. 90, the 90, the 97 team, first of all, I think the Bulls were better in the second three peat. Um, and I think that's true. And so I think they were tougher in that way. But yeah, they think that 97 team, the 97 team was really good. You know, Starks told me that was the best offensive team he played on in New York uh, because they added Allen Houston. You know, the one thing people ask me, what was the one thing the Knicks were missing? You know, 93, 94, what was the one thing that would have put them over the top? And my answer is always they needed that consistent second scorer, ideally a shooter, somebody like, say, Allen Houston. Yeah. Somebody who could regularly knock down when they threw it into Patrick and the, their offense in the early nineties was very predictable. Throw him to Patrick. If he gets doubled, you kick it out and we shoot. Um, and Starks was, I think, ideally suited for a six man role, Absolutely. but he was the starter yeah. and, you know, Houston. So in 97, now you have Houston's there. Um, Larry Johnson was a better offensive player than Mason who he was yep. traded for. And they were at a time where, you know, a lot of the guys told me we felt like we were really too deep at every position. And we were we had more shooting than we had in the earlier years because of Houston. And so that 97 team was really good. They, they split the season series with the Bulls. Uh, they won the last game of the season. They won in Chicago in a game Chicago wanted badly because it would have given them 70 wins two years in a row. And the Knicks beat them in Chicago. And they, to a man, think they, they could have beat the Bulls that year. Yeah, they thought they could have beat the Bulls in 93 and they, you know, they thought they could have beat the Bulls other years sure, as well. Yeah. Um, would they have beat the Bulls? Probably not. But, uh, but yeah, and that was where the last time that Patrick was healthy the next year, he broke his wrist. He came back in the playoffs against Indiana in 98, but he wasn't quite himself yet. And no. they had kind of grown accustomed to playing without him. And there was a little lack of chemistry there. And then that was it. 99, it was the kid, the Achilles and, you know, and then he was that ninety nine team. If you had like if you had like Patrick in his prime on that ninety nine two thousand teams with Sprewell and Camby wow. and Houston, yeah, that I mean, then you're talking championships, maybe. But it's I, you know, I did this uh, silly bracket, you know, whatever it was, a few to, to kill time during quarantine, in which I was going through like just the, the most. The moments that really, you know, that that's that are the roughest for Knicks fans and they all, you know, you could fit them in. A, a, you don't need a lot of text. It's it's two for 18. It's it's the finger right. roll. Charles it's, Smith. Yeah, you know, Charles <laughs> Smith, you know, um, right. Van Gundy hanging on the leg, although they they won that series of of all of those um, moments, those big moments, the 25 points in the fourth quarter. Um, is there. Is there one that after you wrote this book, you have a maybe a greater appreciation for or like a, a drastically different viewpoint on, um, you know, now that you've learned more about it? Um, that's a great question because there are so many. Um, you know, that one I learned a lot about, and I don't know if you would put it in the same category, but a lot of Knicks fans are still upset about it, is Xavier McDaniel leaving in 1992. Oh. Yeah, sure. And yeah. a little uh, bit before you know, my time, but I, I, yeah, I appreciate but you've, that. You've talked to enough, you've spoken to enough old heads who would tell you, right? The X-Men. Oh, I mean, and he was only here for one year. Yeah. One, one year. year. And it was a very so-so regular season for him, but he was phenomenal against the Bulls that year in the playoffs. Yeah. And people, people, people say, you know, no, but Jordan never went to seven games. He never went to seven games in the finals. The Knicks took him to seven games in 1992 in the second round. Um, the Pacers took him to seven games years later as well. But later, yeah. Uh, the X-Man thing was very interesting because I never really understood what happened with that. I don't think any Knicks fans did. And he was so instrumental in that in that Bulls series and taking the Bulls to seven. 
he ha- he carved out some serious space in Scottie Pippen's head. He he was in Scottie's <laughs> not head that there. hard in fairness. No, yeah, Scottie. Um, yeah. But he was knocking him around, and and you know was a big part of what they did. And it was there was this feeling of okay, we took the Bulls to seven games in Riley's first year there. A lot of these guys are new. It was X Man's first year on the team. Starks sure. and Mason were just kind of coming into their own. Um, it was like, all right, we're going to build on this, and next year we're going to beat them. And then, and X Man left, and the you know the Garden Spin Cycle did a good job of presenting it as 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 X Man. You know, just didn't want to be there anymore, or rent went for the money, whatever you know, whatever it was. The fact of the matter is, he really wanted to come back to New York. Really, and the Knicks really thought he was going to come back to New York. And the situation was, it was, you know, you could go, you could go over the salary cap to re-sign your own players. So they kind of told X, like, hey, we're gonna, we'll take care of you, but we want to try and add some other pieces first. Okay. And they tried to sign Harvey Grant, and then they moved on to trading for Charles Smith, and they were addressing all these other things. And we'll get you later, Lex. We'll get you later, X. And X Man, and then it came like it was like early mid September. You know, free agency had been going on for months. Um, training X told me he's like training camp was opening in a few weeks and I, they hadn't even made me an offer yet. He's like, wow. what am I going to do? Every, every other team's money is drying up. You know, I can't, I have to. So he, he took a meeting with the Celtics, Red Auerbach sat down with them and gave him a take it or leave it off. He said, you, you're not leaving this office until you give me an answer. Huh. X man called Patrick. They were old friends. They were in the oh, same wow. draft class and had like played in tournaments together back in the day. And they were close. And X man said to him, Here's a deal, Pat. Like I, I got this offer from the Celtics. Just take it or leave it. I have to let them know right now. And I haven't heard anything from the Knicks. You know, I want to come back, but I, you know, I got to take care of my family. What should I do? And Patrick said, if they haven't made you an offer yet, they're not going to take care of your family. <laughs> and so he signed with the he signed with the Celtics. And, that- and Checkets and Riley apparently were stunned that he did this, um, but they shouldn't have been. And the thing about it, I mean, you know, you know, Jonathan, like you. You could give you could give a wink and a nod contract beforehand. You know, well, you can talk about it beforehand yeah. and reach some kind of verbal deal like, hey, we'll we'll give you this much money, just keep it quiet until we sign the other guys for salary cap reasons and then we'll take care of it. But they never did. That's um oof. Yeah, just add it to the list of what ifs. I actually, it's funny. I had a few people after I did that bracket reach out to me and like, they, you should have had X Men leaving on on there because people really are they're they're hurt by that. Um, just a couple more. You've already uh, gone over how long I said I would keep you for. So I appreciate that's right, this. That's right, man. As long as as long as you, I can talk about this stuff all day. I, <laughs> so, I love it so much. I love it so much. I wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> so so good. I trust me. Um, is there? Can you give me give me one? Well, you've given a couple already. Is there another little like tidbit or a little something that you you found that you um you think people are going to appreciate that they, that maybe hasn't come out until now, maybe something, uh, the, the latter part of the nineties um, that you, when you heard you were just, you know, you were kind of floored by. Yeah. Uh, let me I, it wasn't latter part, but I'll give you, I'll try and think of a latter one too. The most floored I was, was I talked to this guy, Dick Butera, who okay. was, was, and is very good friends with Pat Riley. Okay. And on the day of game seven, of the NBA Files in 1994, Butera and Riley, Butera was hanging out with Riley all afternoon in his in Riley's hotel room in the Ritz-Carlton. And it's time to go head to the arena and they go to the elevator and they're waiting for the elevator. And Riley turns to Butera and he says, well, buddy, I know three guys are going to show up tonight. Butera says, who? He said, you, me, and John. <laughs> John being John Starks. He was... And of course, John Stock shot two for 18 that night. Yeah, and listen, that, that number is confident. etched into my head forever. Yeah, he was that confident in Starks that he was, he would, he, and it really goes, you know, people ask me all the time, why did he leave Starks in the game? And it, it goes, it goes to that question, you know, because he, he believed in him that much. Um, he trusted him that much and uh, was obviously shocked by, by what happened. Um, I'm that's, trying to no, think late. That's a good one. That's, that, that's, that's, oof. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. I mean, the I'm, the late nineties. I'm, I'm just because again, that's that's kind of my. Th- well, let me ask you it th- this way: um, Do you? And then we could finish up after because you obviously we all bring our own opinions in, into these these things. After doing all this research and getting that much in depth on all this stuff, do you feel materially different about 
that era in any way in terms of like, do you have more sympathy for Patrick? Less sympathy. Do you have more sympathy for the organization? Do you have no sympathy for your organization? Like just, you know, are you more heartbroken, less heartbroken? Like where, where, where do you come out of this process as a Knicks fan specifically? Uh, that's funny. Um, it wasn't, it was hard. It was hard to relive this stuff. You know, it wasn't, I, it wasn't, you might think of it maybe as therapeutic, you know, because some of that stuff is still sticks with me, but no, it wasn't, it was hard. I, I didn't like covering and writing about Charles Smith and Reggie Miller and, <laughs> and, and so many other, moments. I mean, you're, you're human. So, right. Um, the, you know, there are certain, um, the, inevitably there are certain individuals that I gained some respect for lost a little respect for okay. um, one guy who I gained a ton of respect for was Larry Johnson. Um, I had no idea, you know, I thought LJ was a good ball player and, and that was it, you know? And of course I knew, you know, his backs, I remember when he was yeah. a, a sensational ball player um, and also, you know, a real uh, media, media star. Um, but I had no idea he was so beloved and respected in the locker room. You know, I had a a few teammates, a few guys told me he's the best teammate they've ever had at any level. Wow. And, and, you know, Van Gundy talked about, talks about him in just in in glowing terms. And I, and um, I had no, no idea about that, you know, and there's some, there's some negative things about LJ in the book as well. He was on the, 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 uh, he was kind of the cover boy for a big sports illustrated cover article about, about, athletes having children I multiple that. children out of wedlock and there's some negative stuff in there as well um but i i didn't know that i didn't know that aspect of him so i i gained a lot of respect for him um that's a good way he i mean he listen lj he came here and he wasn't lj anymore like you again i'm old yeah. enough to remember when like grandmama and the whole thing right. and like that dude i mean that dude would have had a hall of fame career if he if he could have stayed healthy um, but no, that's, that's, that's a go. I, the, the last guy I have to ask about is, is, did you get any Spreewell tidbits in this book? Because he's my favorite. I mean, Patrick is Patrick. Aside right, from right. Patrick, those I'm, I'm a Spreewell guy. I always will be. Yeah. Spree was, um, how did Rick, Rick, so Rick, Rick Brunson, you know, Rick Brunson, Rick, sure. Brunson, Rick Brunson was, a. uh, uh, you know, a journeyman. He was with the Knicks for a couple seasons, and he was a um, he was he was very close to Spreewell. He's still very close to Spreewell, apparently. And you know, I, I said to him, I was like, "Tell me about Spree." He's like, "Man, Spree is just a nerd. Nobody <laughs> knows that he's a nerd, man." I'm like, "What is that?" Good. I'm like, "What does that mean? What do you what do you mean he's a nerd? You know, like what?" Um, so he was like, he he loves electronics. Oh wow, like Spree. He loves. I, Spree's not exactly a people person. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I think he's kind of introverted, you know, actually the guys, the guys all loved him. His teammates okay. in New York loved him. Um, at least from the earlier years, you know, that those, the 99, 2000 years, they, they loved him. Um, but he was kind of introverted and he's, I think Spree's like ideal day is to sit in his room and like uh, take apart a stereo and put it back together again. That's why Or take apart a computer and put it back together again. He, he's a tinker, big tinker. The other thing he loves is cars, and uh, that I knew. He loves to uh, like his his grandfather worked at like an auto body shop, and he would go and work with him. And he loves to take apart same thing, like take apart cars and put them back together. Um, that's kind of that's that's his thing. You know, um, every everything I heard about Spree was was positive in New York. You know, he was uh, you know it, it didn't end well in New York, but he. Um, you know, he, he was intelligent guy. He was very well-spoken. Um, you know, some things that were just very contrary to the, to the image, of sure. course, but, but his teammates liked him, you know, he was a supportive guy in the locker room. Um, he didn't cause any trouble and uh, he loved, he was, he was a nerd. <laughs> um, people, people have asked me like, if you, if I could have anyone on this podcast, like who, who would it be? And like, Patrick is the obvious answer. And like, you know, Riley is out there, but like right. former, former Knicks, I think Spreewell is probably my number one. I just, I would kill to talk to that guy and ask him some, some questions, maybe about, maybe about his being a nerd. Um, <laughs> Paul, this was uh, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I want to just give you a chance to uh, plug your own book once again, even though I said it at the beginning. So can you just, 
tell people once again where they could find uh, it's so it's so good. I was again, I was skimming, skimming it today because I read it. Um, I gave it a quick read when you first sent it and I was going back over it. I was like, man, the work you put into this is so clear and it's so good. Because he, like, so just because someone puts work into something doesn't mean it's a good read. <laughs> this is a good read. It reads easy, um, which is saying something given all of the pain. Um, but it, <laughs> but it does, but it does read. It. So yes, please tell tell folks where they can get this. Well, thank you, thank you again for the kind words. Uh, you can you can get the book at uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, bookstore. Um, you know, a lot of the really just any any online place that sells books. Um, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with it. I think Nick fans will will love it, and I hope I think basketball fans in general will love it. I, you know, I always say to people, I think a lot of what brings it to life is the characters. As, yeah, you can probably say that for any story, but there are a lot of great characters. You know, with Ewing, and we talked about a lot of them, and but even guys like, you know, a Charlie Ward who was the Heisman Trophy winner and then went on to be starting point guard for the Knicks, or yeah. you know. Anthony Mason was a fascinating character. Oakley, of course, everybody knows about Oak, and there's some great Oak stories in there. Um, so I think the characters really make it make it fun. Well, I, I purposely didn't. I, I don't want to give away the you know the the cow. Um, or, or <laughs> what, what is it? Give away the milk? Yeah, give away the. But yeah, make, I, I want people to buy the cow. That's it. Buy the cow. Um, <laughs> buy my cow, please. The, the cow. <laughs> the cow in this case, of course, is the Knicks of the '90s. Um, it, it, get it. It's it's really good. Um, it's a it's a great gift for the Knicks fan in your life, and um, if you are super lazy and you can't type something into Google, um, I will uh, be sure to include a link to the book in the description for the uh, or we'll. Um, We'll, I imagine we'll probably get this up on YouTube, if that's all right with you. And uh, on the, um, you know, where you, wherever you get your podcasts, we'll, we'll, we'll put the link in there as well. So, Paul, I, I really appreciate the time. Everybody out there, go um, go buy this. And, uh, yeah, we will be back with another episode of the Next Film School Podcast before you know it. Thanks so much. Thanks.